0: And a very good morning to you from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show and and we have our usual mix of science topics for you today and I'd like to welcome fellow fuzzy presenter from the BBC in fact Palavi Jane good morning Palavi
1: Uh good morning Rod good morning and good morning to all our listeners
0: And we're going to kick off, as we always like to do, with items from this day in science. And the first is Gerard-Henri or some such French name, born on the 25th of April 1918, died in October 1995, and he was a French-born US astronomer whose pioneering studies of distant galaxies contributed to knowledge of the age of the large-scale structure of the universe. And that's pretty deep stuff. Now, back coming up in June, we have a professor of planetary astronomy coming in, and he will be talking about planetary science. And I love those stuff with the Cassini spacecraft, the Galileo, and the moons. And my favourite website is the astronomy picture of the day. Mm -hmm. And also, this morning, we're going to be having Brad Updike, paleoclimatologist, who will be joining us and be talking about Climate change. So, what have you got, uh, Palavi?
1: Well, I've got some um, famous people who died on this day. The first is uh, Francis P. Shepard. He died uh, on the 25th of April in 1985. Now, he was an American marine geologist whose pioneering surveys of submarine canyons of the coast of California marked the beginning of uh, Pacific marine ge- geology. And then we have uh, Floyd Bennett. Uh, who died on this day in April 1928. Now, he was an American pioneer aviator who piloted the first successful flight over the North Pole. And then there was William Beaumont, who died on the 25th of April on, in 1853. Now, he was a U.S. Army surgeon and the first person to observe and study human digestion as it occurs in the stomach. And then, uh, of course, we have Anders Celsius, who died on this day uh, in April 1744.
0: Yes, and I picked up Mr. Celsius because of the temperature scale, and today we're talking about temperature. But what was the name of the fellow who did the, uh, the stomach uh, research? Uh,
1: it's William Beaumont. I think.
0: Yeah, now that, it's a fascinating story because what happened was this bloke was shot in the in the stomach with a shotgun and he had this big hole in his guts and it didn't heal over. And what this surgeon used to do was he, he decided he wanted to experiment without the, with, about how the human stomach works, right? And uh, so he got little pieces of meat and stuff and he poked them into the hole in his stomach and watched them digest and then he'd pop them out again and say, oh yes. And he observed what actually went on in the stomach like this. <laughs> And this poor bloke was, uh, uh, you know, subject to this bloke's experiment for an extended period and eventually he got really sick of having bits of food poked (laughs) into his stomach and pulled out on pieces of string and he said, I'm not doing this anymore.
1: That's that's fascinating. I mean, but not so fascinating for the guy who got shot, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) It reminds me of various other people who've been subjected to scientific experiments. We like to do it in the Fuzzy Logic studio, by the way. Last week we were prizing somebody's brain out of putting it on a dish. And here's another fellow, Francois, uh, another French name, I can't pronounce it, Hennenbik, born 25th of April, 1842, died on 20th of March, 1921. And he was a French engineer who experimented various ways of making reinforced concrete. In other words, with iron and steel, as we now do, and incidentally, recently I heard that they are experimenting with um, using carbon fibre. All right. And it's not prone to rust as we get, you know, the so-called concrete cancer. And Another reason I th- thought this one was interesting was because concrete is made from uh, marine deposits. Now, I'll always like to pick subjects that are relevant to our guest cars right what a pain in that cars are you go to get your car fixed and it costs you money right the other day i took my car to a uh a workshop and the mechanic walks out and you know they've got that look on their face and they say ah the 323 yeah look that water pump is looking a little dodgy i really think you should get that fixed it's going to cost you uh, a bit of money to get that fixed i went right look so i go to a different mechanic and i say to him look uh how's my car look and he goes uh look mate the water pump i went right so i go down to the local milk bar and he says look it's fine mate no problem and that's kind of reminds me of what's happening in the climate debate now Uh, we have serious researchers with mountains of evidence showing that climate change is a real phenomenon And uh, yet the science has lost the debate in a way. It's gone into the realm of politics. And the normal rules of science discussion don't seem to be applying. So I'd like to now welcome into the studio, uh, for the second time, uh, an old friend of the show, Dr Bradley Updike, who is Senior Lecturer, Research School of Earth Science at the ANU and uh, he started his research as a blue water scientist looking at ocean and atmospheric CO2 exchange and you're a former student of Columbia University. It's true, it's true. Thank you, Rod. Welcome, Brad. It's good to be here. <laughs> now, Brad, uh, I understand you actually have a bit of a history with climate research. I went to your lecture the other night and I've got to say it was a really good lecture. Well, thank you. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, I was sort of born into it and I sort of grew up in in one of the hotbeds of climate research in the 70s and 80s, which is Columbia University. And uh, so, yeah, I've been living with this my entire
0: life. (laughs) But what what was interesting is that you have a family history with uh, climate research. It's true. My father was one of the first
2: paleomagnetists, and those are the guys that study the science of reversals of the Earth's magnetic field. And this was a new science in the 1950s, and my father caught the wave and surfed it his entire career. And so when you're the first in a, in a field, you can sort of skim the cream. And he did a lot of paleoclimate work. He proved that if you look at various geologic deposits in the, in the, in the rock record and reconstruct where they were in latitude space, that their, their paleolatitudes lined up. Like if you look at Desert Sands, for example, this is one of the things he looked at in his Ph.D., was that, yeah, they all seemed to cluster right around between 10 and 25 degrees from the equator, or 30 degrees from the equator, that kind of thing. And until we had a, a tool to figure out what the paleo latitude was, of course you couldn't do this. And then he went on to do marine research, and he became one of the first marine geologists to be able to apply geologic time scales to solve sediments. In fact, he was the first person to work that out. And this allowed us to, to as I said in the talk the other night, to calibrate the Milankovitch cyclicity, which we can talk about a little bit later, yeah. the astronomic forcings of obliquity, eccentricity, and the shape of the Earth's orbit, um, or precession, sorry, and eccentricity is the shape of the Earth's orbit. And all those things are, are different wave functions. And we know The mathematicians, the Scott Milankovitch, worked this out decades and decades before, but there's no way to test it until you had a a good data set and a good time scale. So that's something my father and Nick Shackleton provided. And so once that happened, really, the the field of paleoceanography was born in the 1970s.
0: Yes, I I recall when you were with Fuzzy uh, last year that you told us that the physics of climate uh, or warming and the, its relationship to carbon dioxide it actually goes back to 18 something. With was it Arrhenius? Arrhenius. Arrhenius.
2: Yeah. That's right. He yeah. was. He was the guy that, that really did the first sort of mathematical calculations. Sort of played the the um, intellectual game of, uh, okay, if we double CO2 in the atmosphere. How much does the Earth warm? And he was made a very. He did a very good job of it. You know, within a first order, as we say, he got it absolutely correct.
0: So what is it about um, oceanography and climate change that makes it a brand of science that is specifically or has a has a lot to say about climate? Well, the deep sea records offer us um, material
2: which is relatively continuous in terms of sedimentation. So like an ice core, which is continually build, building up, if you go to the right place in the deep sea, you can find sedimentary sec- sections which are building up constantly over time. So it's like tree rings or anything else which is growing. You can break that down and go in and pick things out of that core to use it as a tape recorder, if you
0: will, of climate records. So it's uh, the layering? The layering, that's yeah. right, the stratigraphy as as it uh, builds up. And your particular interest or, or expertise is in the chemistry of the ocean and the carbon cycles, is that That's
2: right. Yeah. And so what, what I do is I pretend to be a paleontologist sometimes and pick out microfossils, and, but I'm not interested in the microfossils for what they used to do in life or how the organisms worked. I, I want them for their shells, because the shells record the chemistry of the ocean. And so I go and measure the chemistry of those shells, whether it's the isotopes or trace elements, and all those things can give us clues to past uh, paleo temperatures really. And... Other interesting things, uh, <laughs> you know, evaporation, precipitation, all those good things.
0: Well, I've got a little uh, a little special for you today, uh, you, the listener, that is. Uh, I have put together this little bit of audio, which is uh, a whole bunch of science themes underneath the Moog synthesizer of Wendy Carlos playing Brandenburg's, uh, one of Brandenburg's, <laughs> uh, sorry, one of Bach's, uh, I've lost the words, hang on, it's written in front of me. He's uh, one of his Brandenburg Concertos, and the game you can play is tell me which movie this comes from. And there's a whole bunch of sound clips under here. It goes for quite a while. I'll, I'll cut it halfway through, and then we'll come back. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Radio 2 X. My name is Rod, and our uh, guest this morning is uh, Dr. Brad Updike from the ANU School of Research Sciences, and uh, Pallavi Jane, who hails from the BBC. Uh, here we go. This is uh, bark and Wendy Carlos and stuff. To infinity and beyond! As did the cosmologic
2: science show up through double X.
0: Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. I'm sorry, Dave.
2: I'm afraid I can't do that.
0: What About the violet ray. The ultraviolet ray. Which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong.
1: me side 4, please, for the proton induction thermoskin.
2: I can see you're really upset about this. This definitely rates about a 9.0 on my weird shitter
0: Be the laws of thermodynamics. All those things were. There's some rather interesting collection of things there. They took me ages to put that together, and I'm going to do some more of those. So I'll just quickly rattle them off. So from Toy Story to Infinity and Beyond, and our, course, our regular science show intro. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. That's computer-generated voice. One small step from Neil Armstrong. Danger, will robinson that's from the robot from lost in space were you a lost in space boy oh uh, definitely yeah
2: Yeah, that was my generation yeah yeah i was very young of course but but, and
0: and uh, did you do you particularly relate to uh will robinson you know he was the boy hero who uh you know always saved the day right right well, <laughs> you try to, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Did you um, ring a bell with you, Pallavi? Uh
1: Not that much, not really. <laughs> not much. Uh,
0: this is definitely a very nerdy collection of things, but lots of fun. And uh, I'm Sorry, Dave, from 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one that says The Violet Rays. That's from the Frankenstein movie, the old black and white one. Mm. Uh, X, Starman 8, it's pretty obvious. And I think I missed one there, did I, Brad? What was that?
2: No, it was, it was after the Homer Simpson one, way, way, way down past stop, Dave. Huh? Stop. Um, There's a thermodynamics reference. Ah, uh, right,
0: I then that breaks the laws of thermodynamics. I'm not sure where it was, what it was from. He, he says, "In this house, we obey the laws of thermodynamics." Oh, was that was that the Homer Simpson thing? <laughs> yeah, that's oh, the hom- okay. that's the Homer Simpson one. Oh, okay. Uh, the proto induction thermoskin is from Men in Black, and of course, I'm sorry, Dave, comes from Hal 2001: Space Odyssey. And the Weird shitometer Meter from Men in Black. And another one with Dave. And It's Alive is from Frankenstein again. We'll play you more of that in a little while. So, Brad, what's the difference between climate and weather?
2: Yeah, this is a critical argument. And and the uh, sceptics in particular, or I suppose to say should say the denialists, because uh, they're giving scepticism a bad name. Because scepticism, of course, is an important part of science. But... Um, a lot of the denialists will say, oh, well, this year wasn't as warm as last year, therefore global change isn't happening, or climate change isn't happening. And the fact is that climate is an integrated measure of our environment, environmental conditions over decades. Probably anything shorter than about 25 years in terms of that integration is weather, not climate. So when I tell my students in class... Anything you can't look at in terms of a trend or some sort of climate data that doesn't go beyond that interval, that frequency, if you will, then it's not climate. It's something else.
0: I, I think one of the best metaphors I've seen for this was Dr. Carl saying that it's like somebody walking up a hill with a yo-yo, that the yo-yo goes up and down, but the trend is upwards. Right, right. And and
2: one of the, the analogies I use for the class is it's it's a bit akin to someone's, it, during the springtime, saying, oh, today's weather is colder than yesterday, therefore summer's not coming. I mean, that brings out the sort of the absurdity of people saying it's not warming if this year is not as warm as last year. Or if you just happen to have a cold season, oh, global change isn't happening. Apparently that was happening a, a lot in the Northern Hemisphere this winter because both North America and Europe were having a very severe winter this year. And people were going, oh, you know, this you know, particularly this, the yeah. denialists were saying, oh, this must mean that that uh, it,
0: climate it, it, change is a load of hooey, right? Yeah, so, it proves them right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah there's, there's also this thing about ocean currents, that you know, which is not talked about so much mm. in uh, popular literature, but, uh, you know, they said one of the effects could be actually, like because of the greenhouse gases, that the world could actually cool, because there could be a disruption in the ocean currents. So.
2: In very specific regional areas, and there's a very famous paper by Jorge Sarmiento, in, it was either Science or Nature in 1999, modeled, basically shut down of the North Atlantic conveyor belt or the, the Gulf Stream going up to Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's really the reference where that, all that comes from, is that paper, that modeling work, which shows that even though the rest of the world could be warming up, Northern Europe could be pl- plunged into dramatically colder than it is today if it doesn't get that warming from the Gulf Stream. And... Um, Actually, one of the things that happened this winter was that the Gulf Stream was going up west of Greenland, not east of Greenland like it normally does. And in my experience, is watching these sort of data come in for, during my life, this the first time I've ever seen this. So it's sort of weird and wonderful. So Greenland, for example, this winter was remarkably warm for Greenland, but either side of it, in North America or in Europe, mm-hmm. were very cold.
0: And of all the places, uh, all the pieces of land that we don't want to get um, uh, warm would be Greenland, I would have thought, with that massive ice sheet on it. Of course. And and I've been hearing uh, that they've been doing some very... uh, uh, using satellite techniques to measure the rate of movement of the ice.
2: Movement of the ice and and height of the ice and sort of thickness, yeah.
0: And what's that showing us?
2: It's showing that it's uh, really accelerating very rapidly and of course it's also me- melting very rapidly the the rate of melt now is up to something like 200 cubic kilometers per annum 200 200 cubic kilometers yeah and it wasn't that long ago a decade ago that it was it was like a quarter of that yeah.
0: that seems like a huge number to me now it's a big number it, if you it, think, it, of, think of a
2: cubic kilometer of you know airplane jelly or something that would be a lot of airplane jelly
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and you I can hate cover that.
2: you can cover Parliament House with that, yeah. And I hate jelly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I just read uh, an opinion piece on the CNN by Alan Wiesman, the person who wrote uh, the book *The World Without Us*, and uh, he said that because of these glaciers melting, the likelihood that the Earth's crust, uh, you know, relieved of so much of formidable formidable weight of ice for so many thousands of years, could stretch and rebound, and maybe you know the volcanoes that one is seeing and. The you know large number of earthquakes in you know just a year or two, I mean there could be a correlation. I mean so of course it's an opinion piece, but you know yeah, It's, it's, a, it's, it's an opinion
2: piece, and yeah. from, from my mind as, as an earth scientist, I'd like to see a little bit more data on that because of course we get this this sort of gla- glacial we call it static rebound, which is the effect of of uh, the mantle coming in and, and compensating for the loss of ice, and the earth's surface does come up. But whether there's any correlation. Between that and, and volcanism or earthquakes is really pure speculation. But there's no doubt there is rebound. There is structural rebound. The surface of the Earth does come back up. But his connection between that and seismicity or earthquakes, it's a bit tenuous.
0: Well, that's a really interesting point you raised there, Pallavi can you perhaps give us uh, a sense of how you see the term theory because that's one of the things you know even when when you hear the the creationists say you know the theory of evolution there's a theory of perhaps earthquakes and volcanism being re- correlated with uh, or actually correlation and cause different things aren't they mm. uh between the ice moving and uh, What's your sense of different uses of the word theory?
2: It's yeah, it's 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 poorly used. There's no doubt because there are some theories that are well established, which, you know, they're o- almost to the point of being natural laws with with hu- a vast amount of data supporting them, and then there are hypotheses that people put forward that are just ideas, really testable hypothesis hypotheses, which is which is more what this might be, and people confuse those and use. Theory sometimes in the place of a hypothesis. Yes. And yeah, it shouldn't happen, but it happens all the time. People use the world word theory for wildly different things.
0: So one of the things I I hear is that, uh, in fact, a friend emailed me the other day. I told him that you're going to be visiting Fuzzy Logic, Uh and uh, he asked me. He said, now he's unconvinced about the uh, human caused uh, climate change, and. He's saying, is it really related to the cycles of the sun? Right. And this is, this
2: is one that, this, that the denialists trot out all the time. And it's one that we can test, which is great, because we can look at the data for luminosity of the sun and compare it to what's going on with respect to temperature change on the surface of the Earth. And you can demonstrate that there's absolutely no correlation between that and the temperature change, particularly the warming of the latter part of the 20th century and early part of this century, um, and the strength of the sun. In fact, right now, we are at a minimum for the past century in terms of solar luminosity.
0: And yet, the climate, the, the, the temperatures
2: keep going up, and and the temperatures going up. In fact, we're you know at record breaking temperatures. This past March was
0: the warmest March on record. And and how does this uh, relate to the Milankovitch cycles, which you you mentioned earlier?
2: Well, the Milankovitch cycles are on much much longer timescales. We have three set cycles. One which is precession, which is sort of that that wobbling of the Earth like a top mm-hmm. in its orbit,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that's twenty thousand years approximately. And then we've got the tilt of the Earth on its axis, and that's about forty thousand years. And then the change of the Earth's orbit, whether it goes circular or oblique or an ellipse, is um, you know determines how much energy you get and at what season and at what latitude, and all those things change through time. People don't realize that, but that's at a hundred year times, 100,000-year timescale. So I'm talking about 20,000 years, 40,000 years, 100,000 years. And the changes are subtle. And what paleoceanographers have found out is the correlation between energy received at the surface of the planet between 55 and 60 degrees north, or 65 degrees north, is very, very strongly correlated to the glacial-interglacial cycles, which we can pull out of ice core records and the kind of records I look at, the deep sea records. So we know that that forcing is directly related to the climate cycles we have. And it's subtle. It's one of the things I try to get across to my classes, that in terms of energy change in watts per square meters, the change that we see on those kind of timescales are really, really small. But The changes are large in terms of climate variability.
0: So if if I can uh, just see if I've understood you correctly, the Milankovitch cycles are to do with the the Earth's motion through the space around the Sun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would guess that the total amount of energy coming onto the Earth doesn't vary very much because the distance from the sun isn't changing that much but you're saying that it's where on the earth it falls that makes the difference have i got that right that's right
2: certainly within the milankovitch cyclist there are are subtle changes in terms of the total energy due to particularly the hundred thousand year cycle Okay. Yeah.
0: So what, what are the tools that we have to tell us what's going on and what what's sort of our, our measurements, our sources of information? Well the first
2: one, this is what I, I talked about in that public lecture this past week, was um, the development of stable isotope measurements, which look at the ratio of oxygen isotopes eighteen oh and sixteen oh. People that have had high school chemistry would know that the that the atomic weight of an oxygen is sixteen. But you have a certain percentage, about one in a thousand oxygen molecules that has an unusual weight or mass of um, 18, because it's got two extra neutrons. And so we can... they behave differently because of that mass difference. They evaporate at different rates, they precipitate at different rates when they get out in the atmosphere, whether they're part of a water molecule or part of a CO2 molecule. And we can use that kinetics, in other words, energy of motion, to predict how they'll partition in the environment. So to cut a very long story short, it's sensitive to temperature change. So if we have high temperature precipitation of limestone or calcium carbonate, which I look at, high temperatures you get less 18O in your carbonate. At low temperatures you get more, because actually these heavier, I shouldn't say heavier, that's a bit of a colloquialism, more massive
0: molecules are make stronger bonds. Uh, so if I get you correctly, it's not the the prevalence of these things; it's how they behave in the environment and that's where right. you find them. Yeah, is that yeah. right?
2: Yeah, and they fractionate. Just, just like just like how you you uh, distill alcohol, you can distill O16 from O18 by evaporating and re-precipitating, just like a big still. <laughs> so that the ice, ice ends up, due to lots of cycles of evaporation and precipitation, with really, really low ratios of O18 to 16
0: well, well, speaking of alcohol, I'm going to stop for a quick drink. <laughs> and uh, while I'm doing that, you can listen to some more of the, the switched-on fuzzy, as I call it, and uh, our guest today is Dr. Bradley Updike, Senior Lecturer, Research School of Earth Sciences. My name is Rod, and also in the studio with us, Palavi Jane, who hails from the BBC. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio Two X, And some more Brandon Burke concertos with clips from science fiction movies. Hasta la vista, baby. There is no spoon.
1: The Greenhouse Effect. Secret. Why oh why didn't I take the blue pill? He's dead dying, everybody is dead, everybody is dead dying. Everybody.
0: One-to-one. Anything you still can't cope with is therefore your own problem.
2: My mind is broken.
0: Go with that, isn't that fun? I took ages to put all those together, and I'm going to add a few more in there. And uh, Brad's been suggesting a few more that we're going to put in uh, for a future play of that one. And one particularly, Brad, that uh, I inserted there, especially, I think I did this because last time you were coming on, and it was the greenhouse effect, and that, that was from the movie. Green, yeah. Yes, that was from the movie Silent Green. Now, if you date that movie, that's 70s, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that yeah. was yeah and that that 's very prescient isn 't it? Because it was just people were just starting to look at at the data because the data only started coming out from thousand nine hundred and fifty seven in terms of atmospheric c o two change, and so we already recognized it was ramping up, but there really hadn 't been that much temperature response in terms of anything that was really outside the background noise and i tried to I tried to get the, across the feeling of that the other night in in the talk where I showed the temperature record up to 1980 it really was sort of in the envelope of change in the in during the 20th century it was relatively flat and it's really only been post 1980 where you've had this really remarkable acceleration in global temperature increase and so the debate during the 1970s was still very tenuous in terms of saying,
0: well, we should be seeing warming, but we're not really seeing it yet and wondering why. You know? And that fits with what you were saying earlier about the difference between hypothesis and theory. So back then the data wasn't strong. Yeah. And I think in your lecture you said, too, that in about 2000, that uh, to paraphrase you, that the temperature uh, will break out of the background noise. Right.
2: And this is something that was predicted by one of the famous... Um Global climate modelers Jim Hansen, um, not Hansen, but uh, he he uh, he was put together one of these first models in the late 70s and published the first predictions in the early 1980s. While I was an undergraduate, and he worked just down the street from Columbia University at the Goddard Institute of Space Science, and so I heard him give this lecture, and he was saying, "Well, we're not outside of the natural variability yet, but I predict by the year 2000, the change will be within the realm of the bleeding obvious."
0: And it certainly is true. And that was a yo-yo going up and down and then not till then we could see... That it really was going up a hill, right? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. This one thing that I've not understood that you know when it came to the ozone depletion thing, mm-hmm. like the, the mm-hmm. ozone layer. I mean, you know, countries were pretty proactive and they signed the Montreal Protocol, and you know, I mean, they have been pretty successful in reducing chlorofluorocarbons. Right, yeah, yeah. So why is it that people, you know, are, you know, want to defy, uh, you know, climate change? And what is the reason?
2: I, I think I think it's because you're attacking a much much bigger entrenched industry or at least they perceive it's a threat to them. And they're very, very wealthy. Mm -hmm. And um, it's one of the ironies for me, because I I do work with oil company people and coal company people, excuse me. And um, I think it's unfortunate, because they have funded a lot of the the misinformation campaigns. They Mm -hmm. is a very general term. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are specific companies that are worse than others. Mm -hmm. But they perceive it as a threat to their... Stockholders and their profit underlying profit line. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you look at coldly rationally, mm-hmm. the fact is that we won't be able to wean ourselves of f- fossil fuels for decades anyway. And they could take this opportunity to lead the charge and be the ones actually supplying the alternate forms of energy. Some of them actually are going this route, and some of them are resisting. And they've got very very deep pockets. And so yes it's 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 really it's really a function of the strength of the industries it's trying to stop any change
1: yeah because i mean uh, coming from india i mean you don't have to be a rocket scientist actually to understand how you know because if you're living in a city that's polluted which has a lot of cars i mean you go into the countryside and you know when you come into a city or if you're moving in a block which has concrete buildings versus if you're living in a place which has bungalows with uh, trees i mean you can feel the temperature difference you can actually feel it you know you can feel the difference in the air that you breathe so i mean even even if the extent to the damage that's going that could be done in the future you know maybe debatable, but there 's no doubt that you know that something is happening so right for
2: for those of us that deal with the data it's been a it 's been a layset, lay down maaire really in terms of just demonstrating this is all happening for probably more than a decade now and and so it 's really become a policy debate and it's become politicized it's It's really mm-hmm. kind of interesting how the right wing in politics, both in this country and in the United States, has sort of gotten into bed with the denialists. Why this should be, we can all
0: speculate about, but it has nothing to do with science anymore, really. Yeah, there's a very interesting um, broadcast that the ABC Radio National Science Show did recently, and you can get it off the web at the moment still, I think, and it's from the AAAS in uh, the US, and the speakers are talking about... They're the ones that publish science... Yes, but they're talking about why we've gone from the, the realm of a science discussion to the one of a political right. discussion. And it and, gets awfully murky. And the language is different. And so yeah. you see, when a newspaper a journalist, they, they feel they're obliged to give the so called balance between the two views. Yeah. But really, mm. what's your sense of the so called balance if you were talking to scientists? Because they like love to trot out that here's, the, here's yeah. my pet scientist who says uh, that. This that isn't it's, happening, yeah. It isn't yeah. happening.
2: And yeah, they're they're basically probably one in a thousand that you can find one. And um, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money to be made for these guys. These guys get paid like twenty thousand dollars a talk to basically stand up and say the earth is flat. And yes, you're, you're absolutely right. They they the journalists seem to to crave this, and I suppose it's something that sells newspapers or, or whatever. And these guys get a lot more attention than the serious scientists. So. For example, just recently, um, uh, Monkton came out to to Australia, and has, he's a journalist. He has zero, zero scientific credibility, but he's a denialist. And he got something like 200 hits, you know, on that. I, I don't know, with the media watch thing, you know, you, you, you can find out how many articles were written about a certain person. Yeah. And I had a student that plotted up the number of article hits he got versus Jim Henson, Hansen when he came out. Jim got... Twenty, and Jim's a serious scientist, right? And Moncton got about two hundred, and so these are these guys are media darlings because they do stir up controversy, but in terms of any evidence they can provide, they've got nothing.
0: So, uh, do you think I made a mistake when I took my car to the milk bar, Blake? He, <laughs> he, he told me what I wanted to hear. He said, like, keep driving my little car, the water pump would be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's a good analogy.
1: <laughs> and I mean, there is there's evidence that, you know, species are becoming extinct, I mean, all around, whether they're terrestrial species or marine species. Yeah. species. I, mean, I mean, there's so much evidence that, you know, human beings are just, uh, you know, their activities are kind of destroying these uh, creatures. and. Speaking of that, I mean, you were mentioning something about Francis P. Shepard, who had died on this uh, Yeah, the know, yeah I, was, I, was,
2: I thought that was neat that you mentioned uh, Francis Shepard, because he was one of the few really early seagoing marine geologists, and he did so many things first. He's famous for looking at the submarine canyons mm-hmm. off the coast of California, but he also went and looked at um, submarine images of deltas off of Africa, for example. Mm-hmm. And he was the first person that I know of that documented... You know, huge chunks of vegetation coming off. I think it was the Niger Delta in mm-hmm. in West Africa, north northwest Africa, and just how organic-rich that system was. Mm-hmm. And I was up doing some coring off the Fly Delta in the Gulf of Papua a couple of years ago, and the only reference we could find that was analogous to what we were seeing off the Fly Delta was actually work work that Francis Shepard had done. It was really kind of cool to see.
0: Ah, Now, also uh, speaking of uh, physical geology things, very much in the news, of course, is the big volcano in Iceland. Oh, yeah. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce the name (laughs) of it. (laughs) What do you think the effect of something like a volcano would be? Volcanic eruptions of this kind that
2: that actually get their ash up into the stratosphere can cool the climate quite dramatically. And uh, depending on the volume, and that Pinatubo was actually really instrumental in allowing people like jim hansen to tune their climate models because they had a really good idea of how much soul uh, reflective material had gotten up into the, uh, the stratosphere and so it enabled them to really get a good idea of of how effective that would be as a cooling phenomenon it, unfortunately it doesn't make for a really good panacea against global warming because
0: it only lasts in the atmosphere about a year or 18 months and we're not our, our technique for triggering volcanoes is a bit rudimentary at the moment. Yes, it is indeed. And have you read that, <laughs> have you read that uh, science fiction book by Arthur Clarke uh, and a co-author, I can't remember his name, in which they put a big shield up in space?
2: I haven't read it, but I know about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's that again, that's sort of geoengineering. That's being mm-hmm. really actively discussed. And I have a colleague at, at Stanford, a number of colleagues at Stanford, but... Um, ExxonMobil actually went to Stanford a few years ago with a truckload of money, about $100 million. And they were going to give them the um, uh, anomaly for global change research. And everybody thought, wow, you know, ExxonMobil is changing its stripes. And thought that, wow, this is, this is really terrific. So this is, uh, he, he went to this meeting and then he found out during this meeting that the money was not going to go to people actually looking at climate research. They wanted this money to go to geoengineering projects of that ilk to basically mitigate climate change, like putting up big shades, not to do anything to actually reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere per se, but to cool the earth by technical means rather than actually attack the problem of CO2
1: actually even this is you know this is seems like an anomaly i mean you know the people who come out with the alternative for energy like you know besides fossil fuels i think any company that does that will certainly you know make a killing in the future so i don't know why companies are so hesitant to kind of kind of promote this kind of technology because i mean there seems to be no it,
2: it has to do with their profits tomorrow not in the long term and so unless people put up the price of carbon. Which is mm-hmm. happening naturally, and that mm-hmm. might save us mm-hmm. in the end, so that these, these alternate energies can be competitive. It's, it's mm-hmm. really just that. They just want to be able to make a buck. They certainly don't want to lose money mm-hmm. on the deal. And it was, it was why, when there was uncertainty about the Australian climate change policy, mm-hmm. all these energy companies were going, hey, wait a minute, guys, if you don't pass this, we're not going to spend money on wind and solar. So you have to give us some certainty of what the playing field's got to look like. Mm-hmm. and." I think the willin- willingness is out there, but nobody's going to do it if it's going to mean losing money.
1: Yeah, but but I think the the optimistic thing is that in developing countries, I mean, you know, countries like India, or, you know, some countries in Africa and maybe China as well, that, you know, because of the sheer lack of resources,
2: uh, yeah, you know, yeah, people sure.
1: are, uh, you know, innovating and they're trying to do stuff, you know, which is more friendly to the environment. So. And,
2: and it's quite true that China has surpassed the rest of the world right now in terms of um, investment in alternate energies, mm-hmm. which is fantastic.
0: So there's actually business opportunity there as well. It's not... But I think once you've invested in one way of doing business... I mean, we all do this in our own lives, aren't we? You know, like I've got this old banger of a car, you know, and to go and change it, you know, is requires effort. Um, and a big capital outlet, yeah. Yeah, and a way, well, way of thinking as well. I think that's possibly even more difficult because... And I see this in the work I do... Uh, in that if you want to modify the technology, that's one thing. But if you want to modify the way a person thinks about things, that's much, much harder to do. And we all do it in our own yeah. in our own ways. And this and this
2: sort of gets back to your point um, about about why CFCs were so much easier to attack than the CO two problem. Because we really didn't have to change any make any dramatic changes in how we lived. All we had to do was change the refrigerant in the refrigerators. hmm it was a little yeah. bit more expensive, but it was really,
0: really a small adjustment. Small, small adjustment. adjustment. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, just jumping back to the uh, ice, the melting and that, yeah. which we talked about earlier, uh, the front page of the Australian newspaper the other day had a picture of someone coming out of the surf and saying, you know, the water here at Canala is the same height it has always been. So what's this talk about sea level rise? Right. Uh, what was this person actually seeing or not seeing?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's difficult for any average punter on the street to see a change of a few centimeters sea level rise when the the tide goes up and down how much every day? Oh, a major or two, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's beyond the realm of most people, even if they've been surfing the place for several decades, to see.
1: Um, uh, that reminds me that there's... A very tiny island. I'm forgetting the name of the coast of India and Bangladesh, and both the countries were in a dispute as to who it belongs to, and it's just gone under underwater. So you know, I mean, this has actually happened that there was an island which has just slowly and gradually just gone underwater. So,
2: yeah.
1: I mean, things are happening. You know, they yeah. may not be drastic, but uh, they're happening. So,
2: and and there are differences around the coast. If you, if you go to the, if you go to the web page, the um the is it the bomb? page or is it a web webpage? I guess it's SIRO, where they, where they talk about basically state of the environment. And I took some of those uh, pictures for the beginning of my talk the other night. And one of them is the sea level rise data from around Australia, which is very good. And it shows a pretty dramatic change in sea level over the past several decades. And, um, well, dramatic and in a geologic sense, it's only really a few centimeters. But um, the... the um, the, the underlying thing is is that it varies from place to place around Australia due to the, the width of the shelves, what's happening tectonically. You have regional differences. You know, some places will be just, let's say, several centimeters per decade. Some it'll be close to to um, ten centimeters over the past. 50 years you know 10 10 yeah really it can be very dramatic in, in different places depending on what's going on well
0: what what sort of sea level changes do you think we're heading for i mean i, I last time we spoke to you, you your feeling was that uh, we're committed probably to about a two degree temperature rise um globally yeah two to three yeah two to three now <laughs> yeah yeah that's and, and um
2: and we'll, we'll see at least a meter of of um of sea level rise a over, meter over the next century yeah yeah
0: now what does that mean like a meter you know like two degrees three degrees well you know it's a hot day it's a warm day it doesn't sound like much right a meter doesn't sound like much but what does it really translate to in for us for humans and our planet
2: well the, you're, you're absolutely right i mean it's that's within your sort of tidal range but it means your higher tides will be higher and of course your storm surges will be more dramatic when I teach sedimentology as well at, at uh, the ANU. And one of the things, one of the great quotes about sedimentology is that it's a lot like war, There's long periods of boredom punctuated by events of sheer terror. And those events of sheer terror are these sedimentation events, which we capture in the terrestrial record. So they're storm events or big floods or something like that. And it's those storm events which will, be, will give you a bigger impact as sea level comes up. Just like if you have a, a cyclone or hurricane Katrina hitting the Gulf of Mexico coastline, it makes a big difference if it comes in at high tide or low tide. Or yeah. you know, there's subtle subtle differences if you if you just get that just enough to get over the barriers, then and, it makes a huge difference.
0: And I recall uh, visiting Kakadu National Park, which is a most fabulous place. I don't. I'm afraid we're going to love it to death with tourism. But uh, right. they were saying to us there that. Um, one and a half metres will inundate uh, those wetland areas with seawater. That's that's pretty serious. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to take a short music break now, and this is uh, Don't Panic. Our guest today is Dr. Bradley Updike, senior research lecturer at the Research School of Earth Sciences at the ANU. Palavi Jane, uh, Fuzzy Logic regular, and my name is Rod, and this is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show.
2: Bones sinking like stones, all that we fall for Homes, places we've grown, all of us are done before
0: To the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2XX. We're listening, and actually, you've got the radio on, you're also listening. And our guest today is Dr. Bradley Updike, Senior Research Lecturer at the Research School of Earth Sciences. My name is Rod, and Palavi Jane is in the studio with us. Now, um you, in your talk, you mentioned the Canberra region, too. You said that the climate of the Canberra region has changed. Can you just give us a quick uh, recap of what you sure, told us there? Sure,
2: sure. Now, it's, it's, it's fascinating but most people don't realise that if you went back just, and I say just, in, in a geologic context, 15,000 years ago is a blink of an eye within geologic research. You know, it doesn't take very long. If I go down a core to go back 15,000 years and be in, in tens of centimetres of sediment, And, um, but if you were to to visit Canberra back then, the climate around Canberra was what we call periglacial. It means there weren't glaciers here, but it was very, very cold. Is that
0: peri as in perimeter? Or edge of? very close, edge of,
2: yeah, yeah. And you had rock glaciers on Black Mountain, just just from frost heaving. um, It was very, very dusty. You had uh, dust... Dunes moving down the Shoalhaven and spilling over the edge of the Clyde. One of the first one of the first um, field trips I went on here was led by a guy by the name of Bob Wasson, who's now up at uh, Charles Darwin University, but he was at ANU at the time, and he's a famous geomorphologist researcher here in Australia. And it was kind of neat to go down to sort of that temperate rainforest on the edge of the Clyde, and it was one of these borrow pits. And you've got these enormous trees that are growing out of this, this sand dune. Now, and you wouldn't know it was there unless you looked for it. And he said, look at you know this big, thick sequence of, of silt. And is basically a big sand dune that had blown off the edge during that time. So you can imagine that this would have been this big, dusty area with migrating dunes going towards the coast. And uh, the average temperature at the time around mm-hmm. Canberra would have been 9 degrees cooler. I think mean, the average. I think, I think the average temperature in, around Canberra is around fifteen degrees C. Something something on that order, over, averaged over the year. So you can average, imagine that the
0: average temperature would have been about six. So does the this big block of ice uh, to the south? I presume.
2: Well, there wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't. The glaciers in uh, this part of Australia were very very small. Up around Blue Lake and, and Charlotte's Pass, that area it was the only place that got glaciated. We probably got a, could have had bigger glaciers had there been more precipitation, but it's, it was too dry, but it was dry and cold.
0: Uh, okay, I was wondering whether the uh, the presence of ice draws moisture away. Um, no, I'm, no, I no, it's on. Just, it,
2: was just, it was just too dry to, to have significant glacial events, but it was still cold, and you had bigger glaciers down in Tasmania.
0: So, now I've also heard that, uh, I guess this is... A probably talking about a different geological period, but a lot of the sand deposits around the south coast of Australia have actually uh, their origin in the Antarctic from way back. Yes,
2: that's a fantastic story. There was actually one of our students at um, ANU is a guy by the name of Keith Serkum, and I think he's down teaching at one of the Melbourne Melbourne universities now, and his thesis was involved with looking at some of the, the trace minerals within the sand along the south coast and dating them. And he got a peak, sort of a distribution running, and got a wide variety of ages, but one of the primary peaks was within what we call the Carboniferous, so that period after uh, the big, or actually before the big glaciation in the Permian, about 250 million years ago, so about 280 to about 320 million years ago is the Carboniferous, but we don't have any source rocks of that age, but at that time Australia was connected with Antarctica, and Antarctica does have the source rocks. So those grains of sand that gave him that big peak had actually had their source in the Antarctic, and it really makes for a great story.
0: Well, 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 we're running to the end of our show now, so we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to quickly pass a comment on uh, some news I've been hearing about the CSIRO being attacked yet again. Uh, which of these statements do not seem... Do you remember that Sesame Street story? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things does not belong. Right. Global warming, peak oil and fertiliser and other products that we use to run our industrial society. Population growth, $8.9 billion by the year 2050. And cuts to the CSIRO. One of these things <laughs> does not make sense. <laughs> uh, it, it just defies belief to me. Also, uh, also,
2: especially when you put it in the context that CSIRO just had this huge windfall of money from developing the Wi-Fi technology, yes, they're getting you know hundreds of millions of dollars from that, so they're in the black for the first time in a long time.
0: Ah, uh, so okay. you
2: can't you can't justify any of these these cuts on fisc for fiscal reasons because they're they're awash with money at the moment.
0: Brad, I'm going to squeeze in one last question. What's that? And I, and this is a personal one. At the India, your lecture you, you talked about the severity of climate change and you made it seem very real okay and there's a couple of levels going on in here on one hand there's the scientists in you and in all of us and we're going wow this is an amazing piece of information how do you, how does this make you feel when you actually look at these numbers and think I live on this planet
2: it's, it's a real worry it really is it's, it's a real concern but the time scales are such that it's not so much my lifetime where things are going to get dramatically different, but my children and my children's children and so on. It's that kind of time scale where things are going to change to a world that people living today really won't recognize that, that easily.
0: Yeah.
2: And, and we can predict that. And uh, that's, that's the way we're going. And there's a, a large amount of uncertainty as to precisely what's going to happen. And of course, that's always scary. We like to know exactly what's going to happen. But in a way, the changes are getting ahead of us in terms of the science. Mm. To be, you know, our ability, our ability to predict precisely for a given region is very, very weak.
0: Well, I'm very pleased to say that uh, if you've seen the new book on the shelves by Richard Stazaker called Out of the Scientist's Garden, and his his garden here is in O'Connor, just not far from our studios at uh, Fuzzy Logic Central, and it's a fabulous book. And what he does is he takes his backyard and he's turned it into a little laboratory, and he's saying. How much can you grow in one quarter acre a block with minimum inputs? And his garden is fabulous. I'm sure it is. And he's instrumented every square millimetre of it. <laughs> you can see his blog. He's measuring the amount of water, the amount of salt, and the productivity that he can extract from that little, those little plots. Mm-hmm. And he's a fabulous guy. He's been on uh, Fuzzy Logic in the past. He's going to be on the show next week on the uh, 2nd of May. Next Sunday, Fuzzy Logic and uh, so join us then and now I'd like to say thank you very much to our guest today Dr Bradley Updike thank you for coming on no, thank uh, you it's a pleasure oh, man, well thank you very much for your time today Brad it's uh, much appreciated Dr Bradley Updike who is Senior Lecturer Research School of Earth Science at the ANU and uh, thank you also to Pallavi Jane for coming in this morning
1: Oh, thank you, thank you so much, Rod.
0: And uh, join us next week, as I say, for Richard Turzica, your science on our Sunday here on Community Radio Two Double My name is Rod, and a blast as always. See you Sunday on Two Double X. This is the Moody Blues. Lovely to see you again.